And once again, uh, let me say good morning and welcome to Cornerstone, especially if you're visiting with us. So glad that you're here. My name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. And we find ourselves in Exodus 34 this morning as we continue to make our way through the book of Exodus. A little Bible trivia for you this morning. Um, How many times did Moses climb Mount Sinai? Do you know? You know, we tend to imagine him climbing up, you know, once to receive the law the first time, and then climbing up once again after he smashes the the two tablets of stone and climbing up a second time to receive those. But according to most reckonings, Moses actually climbed Mount Sinai at least eight times. That's a lot of mountain climbing. And remember, Moses couldn't go to his local REI outlet to get climbing boots and ropes and pickaxes and backpacks with built-in water bottles. He not only doesn't have those things, but remember what he does have so many times, two big old stone tablets that he has to climb this mountain with. Um, Moses has no need for a gym membership, right? Because being a mediator between God and Israel is his gym membership. Why did he have to climb up and down so much? Why is being a mediator such hard work? It's because that's what it took for God to speak with his people. God is communicating. He's in conversation with his people through Moses. They don't have a telephone. They don't have email, and they don't have a postal system. What they have is a mediator. It all falls on Moses. Moses is God's way of conversing with Israel and Israel's way of conversing with God. Why? Because God is way up there, and Israel is way down here. There's... God's on the mountain, and Israel can't even get close to it. There's this distance, this gap between who God is and who they are. They are not at all like He is, and so they can't get close. God wants to be in relationship with them, though, but His holy presence is not safe for them. That's why He tells them not even to get close to the mountain, because It would be lethal for them. So, how does a God who's way up there and like he is converse with a people who are way down here and like we are? Well, it's not through technology. It's through a person. God wants to communicate, to converse with the people that he loves, that he's saving, that he's redeeming, that he's freed from from slavery and that he's bringing to the promised land. He wants to dwell with them. And he converses with them through a person. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, you might be familiar with the title, called He is There and He is Not Silent. Francis Schaeffer in this book is unpacking the the enormous implications of the fact, not only that there is a God, that God does exist and that he's there, but the fact that he's not silent, that he's a communicating God, that he's a God who loves to reveal himself to the to the world and to the people that he makes. And that's what we see this morning in our passage. We see Moses the mediator, Moses the messenger, climbing the mountain one more time because God has something to say. He has something to reveal about himself 
and also about us. And we're going to see here that all of what he has to say about who he is and about who we are prepares us for what God has to say to us ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. Let's see how that's true. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people." And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you shall see, among whom you are, shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land which, which you go to, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god. For, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep. The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. And if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but in the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. 
The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And so he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would come and speak with us by your word. Give us your spirit so that we may hear you speaking in this portion of your word and give our, the eyes of our hearts to be opened so that we might see you in new and fresh ways and either for the first time or for the 10,000th time and to respond to you in repentance and faith, trusting you and loving you more and knowing you in the way that you want to be known by us. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So we see here that God is a communicating God. He's a conversing God. He's revealing himself. He's opening himself up throughout Exodus 34. Our, our passage, the whole chapter as we just read it, it is shot through with the amazing reality that God is, like Francis Schaeffer said, there and not silent. <laughs> He is there, and he is communicating and revealing himself all through this passage. I mean, just some examples. It opens with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses. Now, look, that's a familiar kind of phrase all throughout the Bible, but you should just never get used to it, that God says things to us, all right? He doesn't have to, but he does. Verse 1, then he says, write these tablets, write on these tablets the words that God had spoken before. Then verses 5 and 6, it says, God preached a sermon. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. To proclaim something is to announce it, to verbalize it, to make it known. In verse 11, he says, observe what I've commanded you these days. I'm giving you instructions. I'm letting you into what you need to know. And then in verse 27, he says, write these words for in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with you in Israel. Write these down. I'm communicating. I'm conversing. And then in verse 29, this incredible scene of the shining face of Moses. But why is Moses' face shining? It's because he'd been talking with God. 
conversing with the living God. He is there, and he's not silent. He is a communicating, revealing, speaking God. And what I want to do this morning is I want to boil all of this chapter down to what is God communicating about himself and about us. I want to see two main points this morning. The first is the good news about who God is, and the second is the bad news about who we are. And I pray that as we work through both the good news and the bad news that God reveals about who He is and about who we are, that what we'll see is that this episode is actually really preparing us to see the final and ultimate revelation of Himself in Jesus Christ. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her Jesus Storybook Bible said that every story in the Bible whispers his name, but I want you to hear that Jesus is shouting his name here in this passage. How do we see that? Well, first of all, the good news that God reveals about who he is, verses 1 through 9. I want you to remember that just a few verses ago in the last chapter in Exodus, chapter 33, Moses had begged God for something. He said, God, show me your glory. And God responds, Moses, that would kill you. It's not safe. But here's what I can do. I will pass, he says, I will pass before you and proclaim my name to you. And while I'm proclaiming my name to you, I'll hide you there in the rock so that you can't see my face. That would kill you. But it's like I'll walk around the corner and let you see me just as I'm going around. You'll see my back. God is saying, you can't see my face and survive, so I'll let you see my back. And even that will change your complexion. So that's what's happening here in these first nine verses of Exodus 34. God invites Moses back up the mountain, and he says in verse 5, the Lord descended. Notice, God has to come down even to the top of the mountain. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And what God proclaims, what Moses hears, y'all, we could spend the rest of our lives unpacking. (laughs) I mean, it ought to stop you in your tracks. It ought to take your breath away. What's happening here? The Almighty God, the one true and living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who is holy, majestic, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable triune, he gives us a clear window into who he is. He gives us a window into the deepest recesses of his heart. He opens himself up to us. He's saying, I want you to know me. I'm going to unveil, to uncover myself to you and invite you in to who I am. Y'all, this is, it's deeply personal. It's deeply intimate. Dare I say vulnerable of God to open himself up to us, to Moses, like this. He's saying, I don't just want you to know facts about me. I don't just want you to know things that I've done or things that I've promised to do. I want you to know me. And so here's a glimpse into my eternal heart, into the very infinite center of who I am. And how does God give us a glimpse into his heart? I mean, how do you capture, how do you put into words what is at the infinite heart of the eternal God? 
I mean, that could take a very long time, and it could take a lot of words, but notice God does it in two verses. He gives us his name, Yahweh, I am. He reveals his character, his essence. He gets to the bottom of who he is when he says his name, and he says, I want you to know who I am. I want you to know what I am is like. And so here I am. I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Y'all think about this. What else could be said of God? What else could be said of the one true and living God? How many, how many pages and books and libraries could you fill up if God wanted to tell you everything there is to be known about God? More than you can possibly imagine, right? But it's as if he's here saying, look, I could tell you a lot about me, but let's just jump to the heart of it. Let's just get to the center. This is what I want you to know about who I am and what I'm like. This is me. And what does he come right out of the gate saying? He says, I'm merciful and gracious. Mercy and grace. He says, mercy and grace are at the heart of who I am. Mercy and grace are what I lead with. They're not on the peripheral. They're not on the outskirts of my character, he's saying. He's saying that my whole essence and being is shot through completely with mercy and grace. Mercy and grace are like twin siblings. They're very much alike, but they are different. Mercy, you know, is when someone doesn't give you what you actively deserve. Grace is when someone gives you what you actively don't deserve. Very similar, but different. Mercy is more the idea of withholding punishment and consequences that you have well earned. Grace is more the idea of giving favor and approval and a smile that you definitely haven't earned. Think about it like this. If you had a job at a store downtown and you missed your shift one night and you didn't show up for work and the next day your boss calls you in and says, you didn't show up for work, I was counting on you, you didn't do anything, I have every right to fire you, but I'm not going to. I will withhold that punishment and you're still on the payroll. That would be mercy, right? Grace, though, would be a little different. Grace would be like if you actually did show up for work, but you showed up drunk and high, and you ran through the store with a baseball bat, destroying all the merchandise, and you physically attacked several customers and put them in the hospital, and they will later file multi-million dollar lawsuits against you, and you steal the cash register, and then you burn the store to the ground. And the next day, the boss calls you in and says, I know everything. I saw it all. And I'm going to pay your lawsuits for you. And I'm going to go to jail in your place. And I'm going to serve your sentence for you. And you can keep the cash register. 
And when I rebuild my store, I'm going to put a nice condo at the top so that you can come live there rent-free for the rest of your life. And here's your check for your shift yesterday. Y'all, that's grace. And God is saying it's that kind of grace that's at the very heart and center of who I am. God is saying here, you don't have to talk me into it. I'm not reluctant or stingy with it. It's who I am. And then he goes on. I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Y'all, when God says he's slow to anger, he's using a Hebrew phrase there that's actually kind of funny. Remember, this is God describing himself. And the Hebrew phrase that he uses here, um, in Hebrew there's not the words slow or anger. The Hebrew phrase is literally long of nose. God says he has a long nose. Back then, if you wanted to describe somebody as being rash or like, quick to fly off the handle or like quick to, you know, lose their mind at a snap of a finger, you would have said that they have a short nose. You know, because what happens to your face when you instantly, quickly get angry? It starts to get kind of red and a little blushed, right? So to have a short nose in Hebrew meant to have a short fuse, quick temper. And it's funny, God tells Moses, you can't see my face, but I want to tell you something about my face. I have a long nose, In other words, I've got a really long fuse. I'm slow to anger because I'm so quick to mercy. He's slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love. But notice this, though. The anger, it's still there. It's not that he has no anger. He says he's slow to anger. He's not saying he's not capable of just, righteous Anger In the next sentence, he's going to say in the next breath, he by no means clears the guilty. God's justice and his righteous wrath against everything that is wrong and broken and evil and sinful, his justice is is a praiseworthy aspect of his perfect, pure, and holy character. But notice there's there's tension here, tension in verse 7. God says... He says that he forgives iniquity. But then in the next breath, in the same breath, he says that he visits iniquity. The word for forgive here, that he forgives iniquity, means literally to lift off, to to take away from. And so God, in his perfect, sovereign, generous justice, he says that he lifts the guilt of sin off of some who who deserve it, And that he doesn't lift the guilt of sin off of others who are just as guilty. But listen to what he's saying about himself. He's saying that he's quick to do one and he's slow to do the other. He says he leans towards one and he has a long fuse with the other. You know, when it comes to spending habits, we tend to fall on some kind of you know, somewhere on the spectrum between either being a big spender or a big, a big saver. Some of us have the proverbial holes in our pockets, right? When you come across money, you just spend it right away. You love to spend and you're reckless with it. But maybe some of us are savers. We get money and we like to save it away, store it away. We don't like to spend it. We only spend it when we have to. Some of us fall on one end, you know, somewhere on that spectrum, 
Listen to what God is saying about himself. He's saying when it comes to showing mercy, when it comes to giving grace and steadfast love, he's got holes in his pockets. He loves to spend it, and he spends it quickly. He's extravagant with it. He's abounding in steadfast love. In other words, he doesn't save it up. He's not a big saver when it comes to grace. He spends it like it grows on trees. And when it comes to his anger, when it comes to his just wrath, he's a big saver. He spins it up. He stores it up so that he doesn't have to spend it immediately. He's slow to spend it, but he will. Let me ask you a question. What if this was reversed? What if God described himself as slow to steadfast love and abounding in anger? What if God described himself that way? You know, it's possible that many of us in this room, when we, when we think about God, maybe you think of him like that. Quick to being angry, easily disappointed, hard to get back into your good graces, a big spender when it comes to being displeased with you. And a big saver, stingy and closed-fisted when it comes to showing mercy and grace. You know, we really can fall into and stay there for a long time believing that God is so different than he tells us that he is. But what if God actually was quick to anger and slow to steadfast love? I want to ask you, would he still be God? Yes. He would still be perfectly just and righteous and fair and good. He would still be God if he saved up all of his mercy but spent all of his justice right away. He would still be God. But the book of Exodus would be a lot shorter because it would have ended several chapters ago with a charred crater in the middle of the Sinai Desert, right? Or actually, the Bible would be a lot shorter than that. Maybe it would have ended at Genesis chapter 6 with a flood, but no ark and no rainbow. Or maybe the Bible would be even shorter than that because it would be only three chapters long, ending with God crushing the serpent right then and there in the garden, along with Adam and Eve, who deserved it just as much. If God was quick to anger, And slow to steadfast love, he would deserve our praise just as much, but we wouldn't be around to give it. It is good news that God is exactly who he is. It is good news that God is exactly what he is like. That's the good news that God reveals about himself, his name, who he is. It's good news. And notice that Moses' response here in verses 8 and 9, it says he quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Moses gets a glimpse into the very heart of God when he reveals his name and it just knocks him to the ground. Worship is the only appropriate response in the presence of a God like this. But notice what immediately comes out of Moses' mouth in verse 9. He goes from reveling in the good news of who God is, our main point, our first point. 
He goes from that to lamenting the reality of our second point, the bad news about who we are. Look at verse 9. He says, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for this is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Friends, there is great tension right here that we need to feel the weight of. Because on the one hand, Moses knows that they don't stand a chance unless God goes with them. He says, God, you've got to go in the midst of us. In other words, if you let us go, if you just wind us up and let us go from here to the promised land on our own, we will crash and burn immediately because they're stiff-necked because of who they are. They're going to go their own way. They're going to do their own thing. They just did it in the very shadow of Mount Sinai. How do you think it's going to go when they're in the promised land and life is comfortable and worshiping other gods involves the allure of sexual activity? How do you think it'll go then? He says, we don't have a chance at being faithful on our own. Please go in the midst of us. You have that on the one hand, but then on the other hand, in a very real way, the people of Israel don't stand a chance if God does go in the midst of them. You see, you remember, they can't even touch the mountain that God is on, or it would kill them. God is way up there, and they're way down here because God can't be in the midst of them. His holiness is lethal. They can't survive his presence and his glory. Remember when Moses, at the end of this passage, he comes down from the mountain and his face is shining like a hot iron because he's been in the presence of God. What's, what's happening there? He's reflecting the glory of God because he's been in God's presence. You see something happening here where, again, we've seen this dynamic in the Bible before, but you become like what you worship. The people of Israel made a cow, and the first words out of God's mouth to describe them is that they became stiff-necked. They started to become very cow-like. What's happening here? Moses gets into God's presence, and he starts to shine like God. He starts to reflect God's very glory. But what happens? He comes back down from the mountain reflecting God's glory, and they can't take it. They can't handle it. It scares them, and they back away. They can't even handle the reflected glory of God. How do you think they would possibly survive the presence and unfiltered glory of God itself? Think about this. Moses is begging God to dwell in the midst of them and feel this tension. It's like begging a father to be with his three-year-old child walking out in the middle of the desert. And it's like begging Category 5 Hurricane Katrina to come and be with the city of New Orleans. Do you feel that tension? Do you see the problem here? And do you realize that you and I have the same problem? We were made in the image of God, created to be with Him in His presence. His glory was made to be our natural habitat. And that is now the one place that we can't be because of our sin. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. His glory and his presence was their natural habitat. 
We were made to find rest and joy and life in his presence, but our rebellion means that God's glory and presence, our natural habitat, is now toxic and dangerous and lethal. So do you feel the tension here? Do you see the problem? Moses definitely did. And that makes me wonder what may have been going through Moses' mind here in verses 10 through 26. Um, These are verses that should be familiar to you if you've been here for a few weeks because we read a passage just a few chapters ago that read exactly like this. God tells Moses here that he is going to make a covenant with Israel. And look, why does it sound familiar? Because it sounds exactly like the first one. God is going to make the exact same covenant with them that he did before and that they just proved that they can't keep. Now look, this is incredible. Words cannot capture how merciful and gracious God is being here to say, okay, let's do this again. You just failed miserably. Right out of the starting blocks, you tripped and fell. Let's do it again. And so he enters into covenant with them again. And look, again, we've got some good news and some bad news here. The good news about this covenant redo is that it's the exact same. Nothing's changed. This part of the passage should read familiar to us like because we read it a few chapters ago. We've read this language before. Notice God doesn't say, okay, look, that was too hard for you. I'm sorry. The standard was a little bit too high. I wanted all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I realized that's unreasonable, so let's just, let's just cut a deal and say some of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God doesn't go there. He gives them the exact same covenant because he is the exact same God. He's spelling out for them what it means to be in relationship with a God like this. And we're not going to go through everything. Um, I just want to capture it like this. This is what it looks like to live completely, exclusively dedicated to God. All of these rules and stipulations that we just went through, this is what it means to be a people that are dedicated to God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's not a square inch of your life that remains unaffected. It affects your calendar, your time, your resources, your family, your work, your rest, your income, everything. Nothing's untouched when you're in relationship with a covenant God like this. So it's a covenant redo. Nothing's changed. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. The people are exactly the same too. They haven't changed either. So does anybody really think it's going to work this time? Look, the the people, they probably do. They're naive and stiff-necked enough to think, okay, good, we got it this time. But Moses knows better, and God definitely knows better. God knows that what people like us really need, what stiff-necked people really need, is not the right information. And it's not the right instructions. What stiff-necked people need deeply is not the right directions or a second chance or a third chance or a 500th chance. What stiff-necked people like us need goes way deeper than that. 
We don't need to just know what to do. I mean, listen, how did it go for you this week? How far did that get you this week? Is that your real problem? Did you lack information? When you fell short of the glory of God again this week, in thought, word, and deed, countless times, was it because you just didn't have the right information? No, our need goes way deeper than just to know the law. What we need is somebody that can keep it for us. We need someone who doesn't just deliver God's word to us. We need somebody who can obey it for us. We need somebody who doesn't just go into God's presence and glory and come back reflecting it to us. We need somebody who can make it safe for God to dwell with us. Somebody who can make it safe for God to be with us in his presence and glory. And y'all, his shadow is all over Exodus 34. I mean, this story is not just whispering his name. It is shouting it. Because Jesus is the resolution to the tension that we see here between the good news of who God is and the bad news of who we are. Jesus is the one who has come to meet us in our deepest need. Because you see, Moses, he came down from God's presence after 40 days holding the law. Jesus came down from God's presence in all eternity to keep that law. Moses climbed the mountain so that he could bring down the law of God written in stone. Jesus climbed the cross so that he could send down the Spirit of God to write his law on our hearts. Moses talked with God. He heard the words of God and communicated God's words to Israel about what God is like. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the full and final communication to you about who God is and what God is like. Moses was the messenger. Jesus is the message. Moses heard the name of God. He got a window into the very nature and heart of God. And Jesus is the embodiment of that name. Like Hebrews 1 says, the exact imprint of his nature. In Exodus 34, verse 8, it says that Moses bowed his head in worship, asking forgiveness for sin that he didn't even commit, and asking God not to forsake his people. In John 19, verse 30, it says that Jesus bowed his head in death, securing forgiveness for sin that he didn't commit, and asking why he had been forsaken. Moses reflected the radiance of the glory of God, and he had to veil his face because we couldn't even handle the reflection of God's glory. Jesus, Hebrews 1 tells us, is the radiance of the glory of God. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. You know, Moses, Moses asked to see God's face back in Exodus 33. And God said, you won't survive that. So I'll show you my back. 
But you know, that prayer of Moses was answered. Years later, on another mountain, Jesus climbed up with Peter and James and John in Matthew 17, and it tells us that he was, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And then it says, you know who they saw there talking with him? Moses and Elijah in conversation with him. I just wonder if the first word out of Moses' mouth was, finally, finally, because he was looking into the face of God at last. Y'all, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come so that you too may behold the face of God and be welcomed into his glory and presence forever so that you too, by faith right now and by sight then, with an unveiled face can behold the glory of the Lord. One day what we behold by faith right now, we will see by sight then. And when that day comes, you will know, like Moses, that it was worth it. You will say, like him, finally. Because you will know that all of this light momentary affliction has been preparing for you this whole time. An eternal weight of glory that doesn't crush you, but that you're invited into. Glory beyond all comparison. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would, for the first time this morning or for the 10,000th time, open our eyes to see you to respond with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength with love, adoration, wonder, and praise. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would take us further up and further into the good news of who you are and what you have done for us so that one day we will be able to see you by sight. And until that day, Lord Jesus, keep going with us, dwelling with us by your Spirit so that we might behold you as we walk all the way home as you lead us there. We pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.